This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. There's something happening to me. There's something awakening in my mind. I can't control it. What did you see? There's a crusade coming. You inherit too much power. You have proven you can rule yourself. Now you must learn to rule others. Something none of your ancestors learned. My father rules an entire planet. He's losing it. He's getting a richer one. He'll lose that one too. This is an extermination. They're picking my family off one by one. One day, the legend will be born. All of civilization depends on it. The future, I can see it. Denny Villeneuve's epic, Dune, based on Frank Herbert's novel, is at last arriving in theaters. And to talk about the film, today we're joined by its cinematographer, Greg Frazier. The film features an ensemble cast, including Timothy Chalamet as Paul, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Zendaya, Jason Momoa, and Javier Bardem. Photography took place on locations in Hungary, Jordan, Abu Dhabi, and Norway. Cinematographer Greg Frazier was Oscar-nominated for the 2016 film Lion, for which he also won the ASC Award and the Golden Frog at Camera Image. He's an Emmy winner for The Mandalorian, and his credits also include Zero Dark Thirty, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, and upcoming The Batman. Dune is his first feature with Villeneuve. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Thanks for joining us to talk about the film. I'm excited. It's always fun to talk about June. 
This was your first production with Denny Villeneuve. What was he like to work with? And um, tell us a little bit about those first conversations when the two of you were exploring what the visual language for the film would be like. You know, I'd met Denis at, um, at a barbecue at Roger Deakins' house years ago when I think just after they'd finished Sicario. So um, I, I, I've known Denis now for quite a while. And, you know, we were, we were fortunate enough to be at the... Um, the, the Oscars together in 2017, I think 2017. So when you were nominated for Lion. Yeah. And I knew he was there obviously because he was nominated for Arrival, but I, I, I looked back at all my selfies that I took on the red carpet with my wife and I, and Denis and Tanya were literally right behind us, like two people behind us the whole time. So in every shot that I've got, Denis and Tanya were kind of photobombing our, our photos. So, but I've known Denis for a long time and, and, you know, of course, I've always desperately been keen to work with him because he makes such beautiful movies, regardless of the type of film that he's making, be it Prisoners or Sicario or Arrival or Blade Runner or Incendies or like they're they're all got a real heart and soul, and they've all got they're all character based pieces at their core. You know, I think Denis, you know, if you look at all of his all of his spots, all of his films. They have an underlying characterization where the actors, the characters, the script, the performances are all super solid and and incredibly well, well-rounded. You know, all those characters are well-rounded. So, you know, he doesn't leave a character on the table, so to speak. You know, like, he doesn't have anyone who's an incidental bit player. Like, all these characters are sort of fully realized and fully rounded. You know, and that's where... Working on something like June was exciting because he um, he had such um, amazing cast want to join this. So knowing that you know you have all these amazing cast come to do these sort of parts, not they're not all massive parts. You know the some of the parts that um, some of played are, are you know reasonably small, but they're incredibly important parts. And I knew that he wouldn't leave those on the table, so to speak. He'd leave those guys and girls really well-rounded and, and well, well-conceived. So, but with, with Skype, we, um, we had a great conversation. We talked about yeah, all manner of things, film, not just about this film, but about the film that he wants to make, the, the, his journey as a filmmaker from, from being a kid, reading a film like June, reading a book like June, and just it sparking imagination and sparking sort of, um, the, the type of visual imagery that, that he would then draw upon to make his other movies. You know, I, I really took that from him, that, that, that Dune as a, as, a, as a source material inspired him not just to make Dune as a film, but inspired him to make every film that he's made. You know, it's obviously filmmakers have a, a kind of a, a, a cook pot of ingredients that they use to, to, to make movies. And I, and I really felt that this film was a big part of that, those ingredients in his... Uh, in his filmmaking cookpot, what he's responded to as 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 a as a kid, uh, it, you know, I think he was a teenager when he read it, was you know, I think he wanted to be Paul. You know, he wanted to go on Paul's journey. He wanted to go and and feel like he had, um, you know, the, the 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 big adventures ahead of him, the the new world to to kind of explore and and integrate into and and. Um, you know, I think that some of the big ideas that existed, you know, I, I can I remember when I watched Star Wars for the first time, just the scale 
of those of those worlds. You know, we we you know that's the thing about we know what a, a big car looks like, but then you put a big car on a big ship and it looks small, and then you put a big ship on a big ocean and, and it looks tiny. Like it's it's those it's those elements of scale that that you know I think he really responded to, and and I did also. Like it's that it's that idea that that like we we might feel like we're you know we're we're a big person or you know but ultimately we're we're tiny little ingredients in this in this biology of you know of the planet which is a huge undertone of, of Frank Herbert's work so let's talk about planet arrakis i mean i mean you you gave it such a harsh you know desolate look and i know that uh, denny wanted to do a lot of the work in camera so you used uh, locations including in jordan would you talk about creating the look well we want we needed to be um we needed to be on the ground in a place that inspired us to make those images. Like it was very much a non-starter to, to pretend, you know, like it, it, we can, I mean, we're filmmakers and we're professional and we know how to, you know, pretend and, but a, a place like Jordan is very much inspiring and inspirational for, from a spiritual perspective, you know, like, you know, I, I do believe, you know, and I, I did say to Denis that, you know, when I first arrived in Wadi Rum a number of years ago making another movie, you know, it suddenly became very apparent to me how people can, you know, the people back in the day could believe in a god or gods. You know, I could understand how, I could understand because nature and spirituality are connected. And, you know, I, I feel like it, it brings you closer to to that kind of, that spiritual being that, that, exists on the planet, you know, whomever that is to you personally, um, it, it kind of connects you with that, that entity because it's got such a, such a, um, spirituality and a, such a, um, such a uniqueness to it that it was impossible not to be moved and for it not to, uh, to, to, to really influence the photography. We've seen deserts in other movies, but you gave this a very distinctive look with the color and such. Would you talk about that? One of the things, again, during that first meeting, we had that first Skype meeting, Denis said to me, said, this, this desert is not, you know, it's not the desert that we all know. It's not the, it's not the, the, the yellow sand, blue sky kind of sun's really, really harsh, um, but it's still a, you know, visually lovely place to be. He said, we want it to look, terrible we want it to look terrible place to be in a place that you don't want to exist in and but at the same time we're making a film and we want we don't want the audience to be underwhelmed or disfigured visually by by bad uh photography you know it has to be good photography and has to be uh in keeping with the with the, the quality of the writing so you know we he had a very clear idea, which was, you know, Denis, again, Denis has been living this and loving this for, for a decade. So anytime Denis goes, I think something should be a certain way, you don't go, hmm, and you just make that yesterday because you know that he's been, it's been percolating for years and years and years. So not everything was possible, but everything had to be tried or everything had to be discussed or everything had to be, you know, followed through to its its natural conclusion. And this was a, very much he, he felt like the skies needed to be grey or white, not blue. The sand needed to be kind of, you know, sandy colour but not yellow, like not orange and not this kind of 
you know, what you might see in Outback Australia or what you might see in the Sahara. Um, because, you know, everybody tends to shoot with a polarizer and everyone, well, I say everybody, photographers and, and, you know, desert films tend to shoot with a polarizer, take sort of the, the, the edge off the sun and to glisten the, 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 the highlights and to, you know, sort of to make the exposure better. We, we tested doing the exact opposite. We wanted to shoot in conditions that were sandy, windy, hazy. You know, that's where Abu Dhabi had a really good look to it. Abu Dhabi during that period of time when we shot, which was um, July, August, um, the hottest months of the year that no one goes there because it's just unbearable. But it's, um, it's a beautiful, hazy, has a beautiful, hazy appearance to it. So, yeah, it's quite... It's quite interesting. So in order to create Arrakis, it was um, Wadi Rum, Abu Dhabi, and then you also used stages in Budapest. Is that right? We did, yeah. We had um, we pretty much used Wadi Rum for, for the rock formations and for like anywhere the buildings are and anywhere the, the, you can exist in a, um, in a world of uh, relative safety away from the sandworms. Also, we used some areas in Jordan for the, um, the scene of the sandworm uh, and the, the sand crawler uh, scene where they land and the sand crawler is being eaten by the sandworm. And they lose Paul from it. And um, so we used it for that because we took infrastructure to Jordan. And, you know, this is boring production stuff, but you've got to kind of make sure that what you do uh, you, you take just the right amount of equipment. You, you don't want to do a scene with two people for eight days and have a massive infrastructure behind you of cranes and condors and people and catering and, like, that's just a waste of money. So we wanted to make sure that we, we, we put our production hats on and went, all right, well, if we're in a place with equipment, we need to do some of the big ticket uh, items for the, for the show. And then we then used Abu Dhabi for some of the more dr- dramatic visuals in that they're, they're sand dunes, but some of the less dramatic in terms of action pieces. So the sand dunes were more, um, were more two-handers, you know, or, or, or single-handers with single characters. And you used uh, IMAX for parts of the film. Would you discuss your choices and when you applied that format? I mean, IMAX is such an incredible format for... Um, engrossing the subject, engrossing you into a world. You know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's so fantastic to watch the rise of IMAX because, you know, it's, it's kind of what you, what you never get at home. Like you'll never get that sort of size screen. You'll never get that experience of having visuals well outside of your peripheral that you can't comprehend or you can't look at quickly. You know, when you frame the 240, it's fairly you can fairly easily survey the scene left and right. You know, when you have IMAX, to, to watch that scene, you've got to kind of stay focused pretty much in the centre. Um, and it it was it seemed like a really logical choice because we were dealing with great characters and then we were also dealing with, with great set pieces. So it seemed like it, it was a logical choice, particularly also to to help with Paul's journey, to help push along and understand Paul's journey. Like, so it, it was very much used as a dramatic tool, actually. 
And you shot the film with an Aerie Alexa, but I believe you also used a unique post-production process with Photochem. Would you describe that? Well, you know, one of the things, and, and I've been working with Photochem now for a number of years, and I did uh, Vice a few years ago with, with them, with Adam McKay. And one of the great things about Vice that we got to experiment with was different formats. And, you know, on Vice we shot 35mm anamorphic spherical, we shot 16mm, we shot 8mm, we shot VHS, we shot Betacam, we shot like almost every format under the sun um, for that film. And what was great about that is we got to experiment with with filming things out and then shooting them again off the screen and we got to really play a little bit like back at art college, you know, like, so one, one thing that I wanted to try, which didn't make the edit in Vice or didn't make the, the final process, was filming out uh, digital film, digital video, I mean, digital, whatever you call Alexa, um, to, to film. Because, you know, back in the day, I don't know, like I was the first, one of the first films I shot, we did an optical output and that was it for that. From then on in, it was DIs. And I was really disappointed by that process, by the fact that, not by the DI itself, that was revolutionary, sure. But I was disappointed that suddenly I didn't have the option now to do an optical process anymore. I did one film with an optical process and I, I thought it was amazing just watching the colour timer and the skill of those guys and girls that, that did optical, you know, film-to-film passes and the, the small timing changes that they made. So when I went to a DI, I suddenly go, I suddenly thought, well, I feel like we've actually, we've, we're still getting the intrinsic qualities of film but it just happens to be digitally scanned. So that's cool, right? And yes, it clearly was cool because that's what happened in the industry. Um, like it or hate it. But I felt like when we started then to shoot digital and then output digital and then project digital and then grade digitally, I felt like there was this, this lacking, this piece lacking. So um, during the Vice process, which we shot on film, I, I did a little test on, on Alexa and put it out to film and thought, hmm, that's got a real interesting bite to it which suddenly gives us something of a film look but isn't film do you know what i mean like it's not digital either like it's a new format or it's a new feel or it gives you some of the beautiful kind of the qualities of film the the the, the infrared layer the insulation the halation whatever goes on with film again i'm not a technical person when it comes to why film looks a certain way um everyone you know everybody knows grain and, you know, it's not just grain. I mean, grain's an easy thing to replicate. And it's not just, you know, jitter, because that's an easy thing to replicate. There are some things that analog doesn't, uh, is very hard to, to replicate, uh, I think. Again, I, I will have many people disagreeing with you, but, you know, I'm sure. Let's talk about that. But so when this came up, we shot film, we shot digital, and the film was too filmy and the digital was too digital. So it, it felt like the film was a little bit, filmy and it was like Denis didn't respond as well to that as he thought he might and as well as I thought he might actually I thought we were this was a film on film for sure I thought this was a classic film on film but he but he responded really positively to the digital because it felt bigger it was a large format you know the lenses were covered more he felt it was more of a medium format look which it is um and he felt it was bigger he felt it felt bigger and not as nostalgic and so, but he also felt it was maybe a little digital. So then we went through the process of going, well, let's film it out to film. Like, let's go use that thing that I tried a few years ago. And 
we did. We filmed it out to film. We filmed it out to 65 mil, IMAX film, 65, um, 35, and, and multiple different types of stock. And we, we came up with a nice little mixture that worked for us that was not too grainy, not too jittery, but actually had a nice sort of filmic quality to it that would also help blend the, the, um, the VFX too. You know, that's what film can also do. If you apply that film right at the end, you do the process right at the end, then it can help sort of blend any, all, you know, any, any VFX in with the non-VFX shots. Would you also talk about your choices of camera movement? Because I thought your use of handhelds also gave, it underscored that uh, harshness. You know, when we were in Paul's world, like close up, it always felt really useful to be handheld. And I was very adamant or very aware of the fact that if we were shooting this on IMAX size, that the handheld to be, had to be really good. Like it had to be very steady and it had to be really clear because you know, it could not be uh, a type of handheld that I would have done for a, for a music video, for example. You know, a music video that would only get seen on the small screen um, or a commercial that would only be seen small. This was, you know, when you're talking about something that's seven stories high or whatever the, the, the biggest IMAX screen is, trying to watch that, you know, and, and watching my breathing or watching my heart beating or something, it's like you, you don't want to, put that into the audience's brain. You want to just um, have them understand. You want to be in the character's brain. So trying to kind of channel those characters and and trying to be still enough that, that it felt like the audience could see what they needed to see, but also with enough movement to feel like it had life and energy. So it was really important that we did that. Also, I mean, we had, we of course had still shots and we didn't, it wasn't everything handheld. Like, um, but we did try and kind of mix it up to the point where emotionally, if it felt right, um, we would go handheld. Would you also talk about just lighting with some of those close-ups of Timothy Chalamet or Zendaya? There's a couple of elements of Zendaya that were um, were important. There, there was the drama, obviously, that's in the movie, but there's also the the, the dreams. There's the the, the the dreams that that Paul has, the spice dreams that Paul has, the, the normal dreams that Paul has. So this is a person who can see the future. This is a person who can see ahead. So this person that he was dreaming about clearly had an importance. So we needed to make sure that we filmed her in such a way that felt, and I won't use the word alluring because alluring is the wrong term, but it had to feel very much something that he needed to attain or achieve um, access to you know, achieve uh, proximity to. So, you know, that was part of his draw to this, to this world was, this, was this, this apparition in his dreams. So we wanted to create something with her from a lighting perspective that felt, uh, felt kind of alluring, you know, it felt that it was something that you needed, he needed to, 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 to see. So a lot of that involved backlight. We, we very much went, slightly orange on that that was the kind of the one time in the movie that we we put a kind of a strong filter on the lens you know that the film for the most part is quite quite muted and very understated when it comes to the color palette um 
and there is good reason for that. It's because you know when you see green for the first time in the movie that it's a it's an incredibly important color. You know, green is 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 not present in the in the in the film from the time they leave Caladan. So it was really important that when they saw green in the in the bio lab, that that's again from a from a mental memory perspective uh, was a was a was something that as an audience could could really respond to. But with Zendaya, we made sure that her stuff that was dreamlike was quite orange. Just again, it's just that that point of difference in order to for it to stand out from the audience's perspective. Um, but when we shot her normally, or I say in dramatically, we kind of I kind of approached her in a very, very frugal, simple fashion. The same way we approached Timothy. I, I tried really hard not to um, not to do too much or add too much to them because first of all you don't need to like they're incredibly incredibly interesting looking actors and also i didn't want to limit their performance in any way like it's not a documentary we're not making a documentary and they don't have carte blanche of jordan to run around and shoot wherever they feel like it they they had a clear defined area to film but i wanted to make sure that the the, the the mechanics of filmmaking never got in anyone's way or never ever stood in the way of us shooting quickly you know that's that's been a bit of a mantra of mine for a long time and it's not always possible because there's technically there are sometimes you need to spend time lighting a scene but i tried really hard on this to work with patrice in advance and patrice is the production designer patrice vermette um who's the production designer and we tried to make sets and try to light sets in such a way that that to to to, to go in for close-ups and to turn around were was super fast um and so I think we did that. I mean, I'd love to hear everyone's take on it, actors and Denis and, you know, since then, just to see if they felt that that was a mission accomplished. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You also shot, and I saw them, these fantastic stills during production, including shots of Denny and the actors. You don't typically do that. Uh, what drove you to do this on this project? And would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, it was fun to do that. I mean, Denny asked me to do that. I. I was taking some photos. So I used to be a photographer. I trained as a photographer. And then very soon after photography college, through a various meandering way, I made my way into film production. And um, I kind of dropped the stills camera for 20 years. I didn't really ever shoot stills because I was done and I was trying to learn my craft as a cinematographer. And so I've been shooting some stills with my these beautiful old Russian cameras that I have. Um, and... I just love the way they responded to light. I showed Denise some stuff. I think they were my kids, I think, or something. And, um, and he went, can you shoot some stuff on this film? And I said, no, there's no way in the world. There's like, I can't possibly like make this film as good as possible and be still like, do you realize that's going to do my head? And he went, no, no, no. He goes, don't do it for anything else. It's not for publicity. It's not for Anyone else, just, just, I want a couple of good shots of just the making process of the process for me. It's only for me. Don't worry about it. 
And I went, oh, I said, if you, as long as you don't expect anything, and as long as you don't have it, don't come to me at the end of the film and go, right, so come on, show me the 150 photos that we agreed on. That, so there was no pressure to shoot anything of value. And that was really good because I shot very little of value. It was such a, <laughs> like, it was such an interesting process getting all the neg back. It was one of the things I quit photography for because I, I get so wound up and about if you've got a roll of 24 images and maybe you don't on that roll have anything that's mind-blowing and then you beat yourself up and go, oh, like I'm a useless photographer. And, but actually what happens is when you shoot three rolls over 24 images, you find that maybe on the third roll there's seven amazing images but nothing on the first two because of the whatever. I mean, anyway, that's a long story. But he asked me to do it. I started photographing it. We were getting the images back. They were good. Some of them were really good. And I was like pretty pumped because I was having fun. I wasn't shooting for any other reason except I could. And I had access to the, the, the actors and Denis and this process. And, you know, I, I didn't photograph a book about the process, but it ended up being, you know, this book that that I worked on with Josh Brolin, who wrote the the, the poetry and the prose, you know, this is a book that kind of is a, as I've explained to people, it's a punk rock, free jazz style, you know, photography slash poetry slash design. And it, it's non-linear, but it's, it's, I think it's pretty interesting. And I'm really keen to see what people say about it. Some of the images I love. I mean, I, oh, I mean, I've got some amazing portraits of Josh Bolin and, and Oscar Isaac and Denis and, you know, like, I just got some really, sometimes cameras accidentally double exposed. I mean, I, I love my Russian cameras, but technically they're not always the best bits of kit. And sometimes they're double exposed and sometimes they destroyed a perfectly good photograph, but other times they created an amazing photograph. So I don't know, there's a series. When you're making a film, you can't fail on any shots. Every shot needs to be, you know, a keeper because you can't have the editor going, Mm. nine out of ten of Greg's shots didn't really work, therefore we have to use the one that the wide that he shot. So you can't do that. You've got to succeed on every single shot. So to have that opportunity to fail as a still photographer at times was really liberating so that the, 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 the successes were, were, were far greater than I could have imagined. So at one point did uh, these images go from pictures that you were shooting for Denis to photos that would be published in a book? Well, we, we didn't, yeah, sort of, I mean, Tanya and cause Tanya was working on a, on a, on a, the art and soul of June and she's an amazing author and she came up with the idea of me and Josh, I think Josh and I and Tanya were all talking about it and I expressed my love of Josh's poetry and he expressed some love of my images. And I was like, this could be interesting. Like, I don't, I never had a desire to do a, to do a, 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 a stills book, a book of photos. I think sometimes they can be a little precious, sometimes, I mean, from, from my perspective. But, but I thought these images are sort of throwaway, but, but they're not. They're really important images, but like they're with a poetry, with words, they kind of add up more, more than just an image. It's, it's, it's a classic thing about what I love about film. Like an image by itself might be something you can hang on your wall, 
But you put that image next to another image and you put the right dialogue over it and it can be something that's like heart melting or mind blowing, you know, or anger inducing or whatever emotion it is that, that the filmmaker wants to do. It can create these kind of these one plus one stories, not equaling two, but equaling 10 because you've got these ingredients. So I love the idea of mixing photography and poetry and design to become like a, like a, a bit of a, a, an art book, you know, where the images and the poetry and the art all sit kind of equal and all help each other out. So we, we kind of talked about it then. We talked about it then and then we got on with a job that we were all paid to do, which was shoot a movie and act in a movie and produce the movie. Like, um, and then COVID struck and it was like this perfect time. Well, you know, emailed Josh and went, what are you doing? And he went, nothing. What are you doing? I went, nothing. So I don't know if it actually would have been what it is without COVID, you know. Um, so despite all the horrors that we all endured in the last couple of years, and some of us more than others, it has been fortuitous in some ways. There's obviously a lot of visual effects in the movie. Would you talk about working with Paul Lambert and the visual effects team? And what were some of the most challenging sequences for you? I mean, Paul... I will say this, like I've never ever wanted to give a VFX supervisor as big of a hug every day that I have Paul. Like Paul, we'd be sitting in meetings and normally you'd be sitting in production meetings and you'd be talking about the, 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 how to achieve a certain shot. And normally the designer has an opinion, the DP has an opinion, the VFX soup has an opinion and the producer has an opinion. Like everyone has a different opinion. Now, normally production design and normally production design DP and VFX are normally close, but the producers normally out. Um, but on this, we'd go around the, the room and, and, and Paul would be the first one to, the words would come out of his mouth. He goes, well, the light's not right by doing it that way. So we can't do it that way. I sit there and I was like, okay, hug number one. And then he'd say it again, he'd talk about the light not being right. Well, all right, hug number two. I'm counting up the amount of times that I want to give the guy a big bear hug because he was basically fighting the battles that I'd fight, which, you know, and I know for a fact from, from the past, if you've got, if you don't have the right light, then it's very hard to make something look correct. Like you've got, I, I've never done rotoscoping, I've never done keying, I've never done post-production, but I've seen the results of stuff that I've done through commercials and film. And... I've seen it when I've been able to light something really correctly about the, how good the results are. So, so Paul was a very strong advocate of using very little blue screen, very little green screen, and using sand screen, which we called it, which was a sand color. And he, I mean, he can talk to this, but I think he did a test and discovered that if he inverted the image, it would become blue because it's yellow effectively. So it would become a blue screen. So he could rotoscope off that, yet it would still give me the lighting quality that I needed and would allow me visually to be looking at an image and not having to look at blue screen. I'm convinced that there's a, there's a psychological thing that goes on when you see blue screen on set. I'm convinced of it. And again, I'm not an expert. I'm just a, a layman who has stood enough sets with enough people to understand that it does not make people feel good when they stand on these sets. So I, I don't feel like you get the best results when you shoot blue screen. And so he was a strong advocate of, of using the sand screen, which worked so well for us. You know, the, like, 
a, a challenging scene that we shot but ended up being really simple to shoot. And this is where the pre-production and the right planning come into it. You know, there's a scene where um, the ornithopter, so Leto and um, Gurney and um, Paul and Kind, they all go out to... Over to, 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 to look at the spice harvester um, and they're flying over Arrakis and they're having a conversation and then they realise there's a sandworm coming and they, they do loops and they land and they try and, uh, they try and save the, the workers. So we had to figure out a way to film the interior ornithopter stuff that, that was going to look appropriate. And, yeah, there was a strong push for us to build that on the back lot. And because we had a, a concrete pad and we had every element going for us, it was at the studio and we had lots of screens and we could put blues up there and or sand screen. But the problem was, is that the horizon sat too high. So it might sound like a very small little thing, which it did, I think, to production when we first talked about it. But the horizon sat slightly below zero you know, whatever zero is in, in an ornithopter because you're above it, you're 10,000 feet above it. So the horizon sits slightly below zero. When you put frames up to try and block out all of the the, the, the trees and the fence and the cars and on the road behind, you're, you're suddenly looking at something that's above the horizon. So we found the highest peak in Hungary. Well, it wasn't really the highest, but it was the highest close to the studio. And I think it was an old... Soviet bunker that we were um, we were on top of, and we built the ornithopter there, and we put like what like a dog collar around it at the, around the base, and that was all in in that sand screen color. So we ended up with a horizon that was correct, the right height, which meant that we had the sky the way that we wanted to, and then we had the sand screen reflected at the bottom. So then Paul, all he needed to do, and again I I won't speak for him and say all he needed because they did probably more than this, but they, I think they just needed to map the, um, the, the sand, the, the, the desert below. It wasn't a blue screen where they had to completely change the, the reflections and key and like, it was apparently a lot simpler option for us. It was, it was a hard one to shoot because we were in this ornithopter on a gimbal turning around. So we wanted to be able to turn. So we had the light moving, moving and the light turning and the horizon changing. Um, but it meant that we kind of were in this ornithopter, in this hot ornithopter in the middle of Hungarian summer uh, for quite a long time. So, yeah, I think we're, we're all pretty pleased to finish that scene because it was tricky to shoot. But, but the results were really good. I mean, we ended up with on camera making it look appropriate and really good. It's been a long time since you shot this movie. How does it feel knowing that it's finally coming out and going to be seen in theatres? It's amazing. I mean, it's it's a it was such an important part of important part of my life, you know. And um, you know, I had a wonderful time. I managed to sort of have some of my closest crew on it with me. You know, they they agreed to come and do it, which I was eternally grateful for and thankful for. And do you want to give a shout out to your team? Oh, I mean, Jake Markison, Jamie Mills, Guy McAletty. Bill Smith, I mean, the, the, you know, Chris Rudkin, you know, Dan Carling. Like, these guys These guys are, have done a lot with me. I've done a lot with them and, you know, I'm, I'm really sort of very, uh, very loyal to them and, and, and feel like they, 
they, the work that they do brings out the best work in the work that I can do. So we all, we all had a very good experience and also it just, just the set and the tone that Denis and Tanya set, you know, like Denis, you know, he's a very passionate guy and he's a very lovable guy and he'll, he'll let you know when he's in love with what you're doing. And it's like, doesn't matter, you know, who you are on set, if you're the DP or the actor or the, 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 the loader or the trainee, like he'll, he'll let you know. Um, so I think everybody appreciated that fact and appreciated that he would have that passion for, for, for the material as well. And everybody knew they were making something great. And all the actors who came in, there's not a hint of, of anything with them. You know, there was no, nothing jarred. There was no kind of ill feeling anywhere for anybody. So I don't know, as far as an experience goes, it was, it was pretty joyous. So, you know, the fact that it pushed because of COVID, everyone was like, oh, man. But, you know, uh, maybe it made the weight makes it better. I, I don't know. What was the most challenging shot on the film for you or sequence? I mean, I, I talk about the time that we, like at the beginning of the film, Denis said, we want to go to Abu Dhabi. And I think at that point in time, we were kind of, Production-wise, we were kind of spent. You know, I don't know the numbers, but I think we were we were kind of like, all right, we've hit the, we can't go to Abu Dhabi. I don't think we can do Abu Dhabi. And then he went, okay, I want to do Abu Dhabi, but I want to do it with the minimum crew. And and he was quietly going, I'll do it with the minimum crew anyway because I want to because that's the, the film that we're making. Um, and I think they agreed. And he said, I think he used the, the number fifteen. He goes, I want to go to Abu Dhabi with fifteen people. And I think everybody just went. Yeah, yeah, right. No, no, impossible, impossible, impossible. And he, Denis held the line the whole film, 15 people, 15 people, 15 people. And then as crew requests kept coming in, like for me, I know, you know, I had some of my crew going, oh, what happens if we need this bit of kit? Can we bring this guy just in case? Like, and I had to go, no, Denis said 15 people and I respect the 15 people. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, it's going to be trickier and, and we ended up going to Abu Dhabi with like, I think 15 people. I mean, it was like, it was that literally that, that small. And to be able to work so closely with those, those actors, we, we dawn and dust it, which meant we got up really early. We saw a dawn, shot the dawn, went home at 9 a.m., went back out at 4. We slept during the day. Like, it was a fantastic shoot. And I still want to do an entire film like that. Maybe, maybe not an entire film, but at least six, seven, eight weeks where, you know, you, you get to the rhythm of sleeping during the day. Like, I don't ever do that. So when you're, when you're that tired because you've only slept, you know, four or five hours at night, it's great. You break up your sleep cycles. So it was something that I felt really good about because on a, on a studio movie, I say that in inverted commas, we were doing something so independent and it was probably the most independent type film that I'd ever done because it was so small and so intimate and yet we were making June it felt it felt like the same movie but it just felt like a really beautiful way to finish the film what was the most challenging of the environments that you shot and whether that be temperature or it probably would have been Abu Dhabi but thankfully we didn't spend much time in the in the, the heat of the day Jordan we were there and it was hot as well in the middle of the day so that was tricky I, every day we all went home kind of you know, having sweated a lot and having drunk a lot of water. and But maybe even harder than that was actually dealing with some of the changeability in, in Hungary 
like trying to turn to match exterior days in Hungary. And sometimes Hungary isn't very sunny, you know, and we, it, it's always a problem. I mean, every DP on the planet has uh, experienced that where you go out wanting a sunny day and you get a cloudy day or vice versa. Um, so it's those variables that you kind of can't control, which are always, always tricky. But, you know, that goes back to sort of maybe, you know, shooting on the volume, which we did not do on this movie, but, you know, there are times where the volumes can take those variables out where you know what you're stepping in for. So you know what the scene that you're about to shoot will look like. What was it like working with these actors? These actors were amazing. These actors were, I, I mean, they're a dream come true as far as a DP goes because they're, Incredible to look at, sure. Incredible to light, sure. But also, these actors have been in some of my favourite films. I mean, it was such a trip meeting Josh Brolin. And it was such a trip seeing Josh Brolin um, and Javier Bardem. And then, such a trip even more, seeing them see each other for the first time in how many number of years that they'd, they'd been apart, they'd not seen each other. Like, No Country is one of my favourite films. So... Both of those characters are incredible, incredible characters. So standing in the desert in Jordan, because they obviously both started at the same, well, different times, and they both saw each other when Javier came to set for a, for a makeup, for a wardrobe test, and Josh was on set for a scene, and they saw each other, and they were like, it was like old buddies um, seeing each other for the first time. There's actually a couple of shots of that in my book, um, mine and Josh's book, that that I shot and he responded to when he saw my images. So he wrote, he, he obviously there was an experience for him too because he hadn't seen um, Javier for a long time. So he wrote very beautifully about that experience in, in the book. So, I mean, it was great. This is, there's some old relationships there and there's some new relationships. I think Josh and um, Oscar got on like a house on fire to the point where I think they had to sometimes be pulled off each other to start a scene. It's like, uh, Oscar, Josh, we're ready to shoot now. And they were just like in their world, just like riffing off each other and, and, uh, and, and laughing. I think they're just constantly laughing. So not on set, obviously, that's their professionals, but while they're waiting for set. What was it like transitioning from uh, Dune to Batman? Obviously a very different look and picture. It was tricky i will say that it's it goes the opposite it's the diametric opposite um i mean obviously i can't talk too much about batman right now as you know but but we all know what a batman film looks like and we all know what june looks like because we've seen june now so um there is no deserts in batman i can i can give you that scoop (laughs) there is no deserts (laughs) um there are no spaceships in batman i can tell you that and uh yeah, we, we might have had people in masks and cows and capes. So it, it, it was very different, but super exciting because, you know, that's one thing that I try, have tried to do in my career is, is mix it up and not repeat myself and not do the same thing twice, you know. And, you know, there are times where I might have rhymed with things that I've done, but there are, hopefully I've never repeated myself in terms of my, my choices. So being able to go from something like June... Um, or Dune, say in America, sorry, the English say it differently, to to something like Batman was quite an interesting transition and something I I worked very hard to try and de-Dune out of my brain and, uh, you know, increase my Gotham City uh, knowledge. 
Is there a, a genre or type of film that you haven't uh, worked on yet that you are particularly interested in, uh, in doing? Well, I've never done an animation. I've never, I've never shot an animation, and that's something that I would be really interested in doing. I, I feel like it might take too long, which is part of my, you know, my, my, my um, ability to concentrate over the course of a couple of years might flounder. But never done an animation, but I've never done a musical. You know, I was watching Grease the other day with the kids, the original Grease, and I was like, this film is amazing. Like, this has got everything that that a film like the audience wants. Like it's got handsome boys, pretty girls, fun songs. Like it's got love. It's got hate. It's, everything about it. It's such a simple, fantastic film. And I don't know. I, I, one day I would love to do something like a musical, some fruity little number that has a. I don't know. I don't know what type of musical that is. You know. Thank you so much for joining us and, and great to talk to you again. Thanks, Caroline. I appreciate it.